0: Hey folks, welcome again back to DJ Simulationistas Sup. I am James Lipshaw, the producer of DJ Simulationistas and also a CMS instructional designer. If you weren't here last week, I opened up behind our green curtain to show you the man back here and wanted to let you know that last week and this week's podcast had a couple of technical difficulties caused by an experiment with a new recording system That experiment was a failure, but an educational one, and so just want to let you know that the audio quality is a little low for this one. You may hear some beeps, hisses, whistles, tea being made in the background, all sorts of things, but of course, again, the content was too good to just throw away, uh, despite the beepings that were embedded into the sound recording, so we have it here for you. I hope it doesn't bother you too much, and I look forward to our normal high-quality production coming back next week. Hopefully you will enjoy very much, and we will see you next time. Now for your regularly scheduled episode. DJ Simulationistas, sup? With Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll.
1: Simulationista, sup? You're here with Janice Paglianis and
2: And Dan Raymer. Sup, Janice.
1: Dan, I'm so psyched. We are having a Simulationista DJ Sim party. I'm loving this.
2: Oh, wow.
1: I wish we should be playing music here.
2: Yeah. yeah. (laughs)
1: Hip-hop music. (laughs) So we have with us some of our favorite people here at the Center for Medical Simulation. We have Walter Epic.
2: Walter,
3: sup. Hey, Dan. Hey, Janice.
1: <laughs> Damien Shield.
3: Hey, Toons, Toons, Toons.
1: I am Mary Bay. So, today I thought, at least for this hour, I would love to interview you, Walter, on your dissertation because you are now a Medi Med, a Medi Med fed fish. So I have this, I have a three-year-old niece and she, I don't know where she got my name, but she starts, she asked me what, what fed, rented, rented fan fish was. And I was like, what?
3: You're referring to letters <laughs> after the name.
1: <laughs> yes. So uh, Walter is now MD, MED, PhD, and then of course, FSSH, which is the fellowship for uh, the Society for Simulation Healthcare. And Walter, you're dissertation was amazing. And I'm hoping that we can talk about that today and have a little party around it. What do you think, Dan? Uh,
2: so so I want to go back further because Walter's one of my favorite colleagues and he has dedicated himself to healthcare education in in a huge way. And I would like to know his thinking about his career path, because I think it's an exemplar for other people who are seriously interested in healthcare education. So, so can we start there and ask Walter, like, could you describe what drove you to do your PhD and how that fit into the pathway that you chose? So,
1: Dad, can I just rewind us even further and make Walter blush even more? Because I think we should introduce him. <laughs>
2: Janice, can we back up even further and talk about his birth?
1: Everyone, I'm still sitting in the room. I'm still here. I think most of the people know you in the in the world of simulation, Walter. We do have some listeners that are new to the field, so I feel like I should introduce you before we go into your career path, because I think it is also a very interesting career path, and I'd like to hear it too. And so you could probably close your ears here, because I know how you, you're you're so modest, and you shouldn't be. And so I'm gonna brag about you a little bit here. <laughs> So Walter is the director of Feinberg Academy of Medical Educators in the Department of Medical Education at Northwestern University.
3: Feinberg School of Medicine, yes.
1: Okay. And you're the associate professor of pediatrics and medical education and also a pediatric emergency physician. One of the earliest instructors for our instructor training course here at CMS and have influenced greatly a lot of what we've taught. Te- yeah,
3: I done. took I took the very first Institute for Medical Simulation course in June two thousand four with Dan Robert and Jenny back in the day, very first edition. Well,
2: Walter was one a toddler the back yeah. then, and we had to we had to make him sit <laughs> stay in his seat, but uh, he was one of the first, along with Damien yes, as well. I had a full head of hair. Oh
1: my gosh! All right, so I would love to hear your career path.
2: So, uh,
3: I would say my simulation journey began when I was a pediatric emergency medicine fellow. I would say for the first year, I was a little bit adrift in many ways, not sure where I should put my focus, although I'd received the really good advice from my then uh, division chief that I needed to find a niche. And I would say it was the beginning of my second year where I realized that simulation was something that. I was really interested, and in, I was doing a lot of pediatric advanced life support courses. And just as luck would have it, no one at Yale New Haven Hospital uh, Pediatrics Department was really doing simulation. Suddenly, I was doing simulation with the medical students, and I went to the international meeting on simulation in healthcare. It might not have even been called that. And I remember seeing a, a gray-haired gentleman who at that time was president of the society wearing a bow tie. Very handsome. Very handsome. <laughs> very funny. I learned about this uh, institute for medical simulation. I was able to get uh, funding from my hospital to come take the course, and I think that coalesced a number of my interests, both in education and simulation, in communication, and it set me on a path. I would say that that is continuing to this day. And I I think that was around the same time as I was doing the masters in education when debriefing was something that became a particular interest, which led me to the PhD ultimately, which is related to Conversational learning, both in formal educational settings such as healthcare debriefings, but also in the workplace—you know, workplace-based conversations that we have all the time that we actually take for granted. So, I would say the IMS course I took in 2004 was actually a, a really important part of of my trajectory.
1: The handsome SSH president looks like he wants to talk.
2: Walter, you just reminded me of what's a great story after Walter took the course. I got a phone call from a guy who said he was a wealthy investor type fellow and a pediatric emergency physician at Yale had saved his daughter's life and that he wanted to put money into healthcare education because he spo- spoke to this young fellow whose name was Walter Epic could could you continue that story that was uh, so cool <laughs> well i think
3: i think this gentleman was a, a venture capitalist whose daughter had a condition that required our attention and she got better and made a full recovery and i think that's how it started being in that business space was not for me and rather a, i pursued a more academic career but i think it's really the the impact that we can have on patients and really what all of this is about this this simulation experience is all about being able to take care of patients. And I think this particular patient had a condition that I had just trained in a simulation with my fellowship director two weeks before that. So that left a huge impression upon me because when I encountered the this gentleman's daughter, I sort of knew exactly what to do and felt very confident and assertive about what needed to happen. So I think that's, that's why this story is such an exemplar from my own clinical background, because simulation really prepared me to deal with something soon afterwards. And obviously, it had a great impact on this father.
2: It taught me a lesson as well, because, you know, the notion that every layperson that hears about simulation immediately appreciates it. In those moments where you're struggling to convince a physician or an administrator about the value of simulation it kind of i kind of have to remind myself that they're the exception not the rule (laughs) Mm.
3: well i think it's also it's also a really good reminder that simulation isn't about simulation debriefing isn't about using the right words Simulation and debriefing are about preparing people to take care of the patients they're going to care for in the future, and it's all about the patients. And I think that's one thing that's at the heart of what we do, which is one of the themes of the recent IMSH meeting, which is you know patients are at the heart of simulation. If we keep that in mind, I think it it also promotes us to be curious because we're not focusing on the learners as we're focusing on the patients they'll care for. I think and it changes how we we approach them.
4: I wanted to ask you about that the academic turn, Walter. You know you're author on the performance gaps paper, which to me is in the canon, a seminal work. You joined the CMS team at that point to do that piece of work. And I found it to be transformational as I learned it and studied and still central to my education practice. So I was wondering if you might talk to us two things. One, what was it like to join that group and work on that? And then how has your thinking evolved about patient-centeredness and learner-centeredness education in the context of performance?
3: Well, I think uh, the first question is related to joining a writing team that I had met on the IMS course several years previously. And at that point in time, I was already a practicing physician and had finished a master's in education. And in the framework of the 2008 Consensus Conference on Simulation Healthcare that the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine was hosting, I had a chance to work with Jenny Rudolph, who was one of the keynote speakers, And she was giving a talk on debriefing as formative assessment. And the intention of the conference organizers was to make those keynote talks papers that would then be published in their journal. And it was at that time that I began working with Jenny on this. I was sort of assigned to support her. And I think, uh, how was it? It was a great learning opportunity, but it was also really collegial experience. And it taught me very much that even though I was working with Jenny, Robert, and Dan—these esteemed figures in simulation—that I had something very, uh, very much to contribute to the endeavor, and it taught me about my own potential.
1: Can we talk about your dissertation? Because I just love it. Thank and you. Janice. Even just the title, "Learning Through Talk," which is really amazing. And and I do—I have a ton of questions around it too. I think the party is going to have to control me a little bit because I'm really interested in the program and the fact that you have got like seven publications out of your one dissertation, which is amazing for a dissertation. It was an easy read. I felt like it was fresh writing, which a lot of organizations don't allow in their dissertation writing still. like They still take a very traditional approach. So that's really interesting to me. And then the topics you chose are really interesting to me, the concepts and and everything that you present in each of those publications. So I'm wondering, uh, maybe we should give a little overview of what your dissertation was about
3: yeah. First. Well, I could take a step back and just say what I did after I had submitted my materials for academic promotion, I realized that I needed to do something for my own professional development. I was there, had already at that point was very steeped in doing a lot of faculty development work. I was doing a lot of work here at the Center for Medical Simulation as well. It seemed to me that a PhD would be a good next fit. And the Maastricht University School of Health Professions Education has a Ph.D. program, which is really Ph.D. by publication. The thrust of the whole program is doing scholarly work, publishing it, and creating a body of work that's cohesive and coherent and tells a story about a particular issue. And very early on, I was looking at interprofessional collaboration and was actually going to do more observing emergency departments and observing simulations on similar topics and actually moved away to that and moved back to something that I feel very at home in, which is conversation and debriefing. And so at that point, I really focused on conversational learning. And I think anyone who's gone through a scholarly journey of this nature knows that you need to have a pretty clear focus, have pretty clear questions. And the question for me was, how does talk contribute to learning in clinical education? And talk is really the verbal and nonverbal components of our talk and the social implications of that. And it's something that we take for granted, very much so. in. Graduate medical education in particular, or when you're on debriefing courses, by the way, we're very much focused on the competency of communication, communicative competence. Are people able to say things in the right way? Are they able to do a handoff in the appropriate manner? Are they able to debrief in an appropriate manner. The reality is that that's all important, but what it does is it shifts attention away from the fact that talk is not only a competency to be achieved, but it's also a medium in which the learning happens. And there's lots of theoretical frameworks that look at the role of talk in learning. But just think of young children who are learning to explore their environment and learning to speak, learning the words engaging socially, which drives learning more than any other thing. And my thesis really was a journey that explored this very broad overarching question, how does talk contribute to learning in clinical education? And my thesis is broken into two parts. First of all, looking at talk in uh, structured educational environments. And I used debriefing as a as an example of that. And that touched on some of the papers that I've written with Adam Chang, such as the PEARLS framework, the sort of promoting excellence and framework in, in, in debriefing, but also looked at debriefing very specific contexts related to resuscitation education, knowing that conversations are all very contextual in nature. That was the first bit. The second bit of the thesis looked at workplace conversations. And to study that, I used the model of workplace telephone conversations. And I did a series of interviews with doctors in training, both fellows and residents, and explored their experiences talking on the phone with other healthcare professionals, nurses, other doctors, etc. such as calling a consult or being called for advice or being called and having to provide advice. And I realized in many ways that, that these conversations are quite formative. And also, very taken for granted. Very often, the most junior person in the team is the one who gets assigned to make the phone call to seek advice from a consulting service, for example. And yet, those often disregarded conversations are incredibly impactful for learning because they are a microcosm of their particular skill set. So, if I was to invite a, uh, an intern to call, let's say, a, an endocrinology doctor and get advice about a particular patient who we think needs admission to the hospital very clearly, and the resident comes back and says, they're not accepting the patient for admission. And clearly there was some breakdown in their persuasive abilities, both in presenting information, but also in making a convincing argument about what needs to happen. So one of the things we found is that, and this is uh, going to be coming out this year in a paper that was accepted uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, That in these conversations, residents and fellows are experiencing tensions, and we call them productive conversational tensions. So, not tensions that are unproductive and disruptive, which are many, but ones that are productive because they give people a sense of where they are on their learning curve. For example, having to deal with strong emotional reactions when someone disagrees with them, or um, dealing with hierarchy, as an example. The other thing would be dealing with pushback when someone rejects what you'd like to do outright without due deliberation. And then, of course, this notion of having to deal with being uncertain, but needing to still come across as being trustworthy. And these notions, at least in my interviews that I did with with these group of residents, really shows us that there are these tensions, things that people find unpleasant, in that they still contribute to learning. Uh, what we did then as an extension of, of, of that initial study was to look at how can we use these telephone conversations as a focus of simulations and make them be an important part of learning. And so if we look at the types of things that are happening on the telephone, both formal feedback and teaching practices, let's say by more senior doctors, that's explicit that people can recognize. I call Damien on the phone and he teaches me about this, but there are also implicit practices that happen, such as when you're getting interrupted, you know, if someone's presenting something and they're rambling on the phone, talking about everything and including way too much information, and someone says, can you stop for a second and tell me why you're calling me? That is incredibly important information that would tell the astute and insightful uh, resident, my God, I got to cut to the chase sooner. And so we describe this as being disguised feedback. And I think very often we we speak about feedback as being something that's given from an, someone who is in an educational role to a learner and of course, we know that feedback is much more complicated than that. And the thing that we put forth then is that this disguised feedback drives learning very much and that what we should do is we should sensitize residents to the disguised feedback that they're going to receive. Mm-hmm. And I think these comparisons between formal conversations, debriefings, and workplace conversations also show how perhaps we can take what we've learned from formal educational conversations and perhaps infuse a little bit of that into the workplace talk. Because really, that's what it's what it's all about. It's We're about 18. teaching people to talk in the workplace. Clinical event debriefing would be a, a, an example of that.
1: Or vice versa. Not or vice versa. Even, yeah,
2: I know you didn't study this, but I'm interested in your speculation about it. You're talking about a uh, young cadre of people who are rapidly switching to other forms of communication, like texting and uh, using devices to communicate. I wonder what the effect of that is on these opportunities for learning.
3: That's uh, a great question uh, and one I can speculate on, although I didn't study it in particular. In my interview studies with with uh, residents, I specifically excluded texting and, and paging because I wanted to focus on the conversation that happened on the telephone. And yet some of them would still talk about that. And I think the this notion of using text messages requires a great degree of clarity in closing the loop because very often people assume, well, I send so-and-so a text message, and they assume that the person received the message. I mean, I'm, this is something I experience too, because I have a phone that has text texting capabilities and I'm typically in contact with my communication center who's interfacing with outside hospitals and if they send me a text message I've often said please don't assume I receive unless I, I send back okay or a thumbs up or something so I think it's an opportunity to highlight some very basic things about communication like the value of
2: closed loop communication number one the thing that interests me so much is the nuances that you talked about from your dissertation of the kind of implicit feedback that you get from people. You lose a lot of that in the sterility of the text message. So Janice sends me text messages, and I'm always misinterpreting her intentions. It doesn't surprise <laughs> me, uh, Dan. Um well, I, I think I think the one thing that was really powerful for me, though, in
3: my interview studies about the telephone uh, conversations is that the further along people got in their training. and some of the people that I had interviewed were in their eighth year of training because they'd done more than one fellowship, or so there were people yeah. who were already seven or eight, six, seven, eight years beyond their. Beyond their uh, expiration date, uh, residency. Some some people had done two residencies, for example. One of the things they would say is, you need to recognize the limits of the telephone conversation, and you need to realize that what you need to do is say, "Let's meet at the bedside and discuss this." Mm -hmm. And so, I think that's a really important insight that people learn. That like there's a point where the conversation on the telephone or other means of communication no longer matter. What we need is an in-person, face-to-face conversation, and maybe including the patient. And maybe Either including the, the depending on the issue, as yeah. of course. And I think, I think it's this, this notion about how we can have these face-to-face conversations and how they can be informed by our experiences in simulation and in, in being simulation educators is so powerful. The final paper in my thesis is one that I wrote with a psychologist called Jan Schmutz, and we wrote about team reflexivity, which is a really interesting construct from the management literature and is nothing more than a debriefing. many ways it's reflecting on things that happen after they happen and what jan did he was the the first author on this paper we looked at this notion of reflecting on goals strategies and processes for current or future performance and thought about what are the time points during a specific patient care episode when you could be reflecting you could reflect before something happens let's imagine a trauma patient is coming and is 10 minutes away from your er you could spend those 10 minutes gathering the team and discussing anticipated problems with whatever mechanism you've been told about who's going to do what, assign roles, make sure people know each other, um, perhaps discuss how we're going to work together. Of course, then the other thing you can do is discuss during the, the event and reflect together briefly, like this is what's going on. There seem to be issues with what's happening. What what are we missing right now? Do other people have suggestions? And then, of course, the classic debriefings. And I think we're knee deep in a recent program, looking specifically at this notion of team reflexivity. But that actually speaks very much in my mind to this notion of having to go to the bedside and speak with someone and work through something that is not cut and dried. I think that's when these conversations, when this reflection, really has the biggest role. When something is on, when you're on autopilot, you don't need to be reflecting all the time. It's when things are dynamic changing. And when there's uncertainty that you need to put your heads together to come up with a way forward.
1: As you know, Dan was asking the question. And as you were talking, I was thinking too about the future of communications and how all of my calls now are not phone calls. They are video calls. And I'm imagining that in some form that the hospital is going to go that way too. And as I was reading your dissertation, I was thinking, okay, well, did he study the nonverbals? And it would actually be interesting to know what you found around the nonverbals of the conversation piece without the visual.
3: I mean, that wasn't a big focus of my my interviews. Although people would raise the issue in that you are having conversations on the telephone where you can't see someone,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: you can't see their facial expressions and their the nonverbals that are related to fa- to, to appearance, body language. Of course, you can still hear tone of voice, cadence of their speech, those other additional sort of paralinguistic phenomenon that are beyond just the content of the words.
1: So I think, you know, I love that you're using this word disguised feedback. In our feedback course, we call it implicit feedback. And so um, I'll definitely be adding that to my um, vocabulary for the course. What, in terms of nonverbals, did you find? Because I find that silence and a lot of nonverbals come out as implicit feedback in conversations. Did you uncover any of that in the phone conversations? I, I
3: wasn't a big a big focus of the of, okay. of the of the interviews. I heard Walter talk about
4: interruptions, probing questions. I guess they're they're not oh, nonverbal, the problem, but yeah. they're kind of a secondary lane, kind of like. A parallel lane to the actual conversation. Yeah,
3: actually, it's it's called back channeling. If I'm not mistaken, it's sort of the fact that there's one conversation happening, but the person on the receiving end is constantly feeding things back to sort of help direct the, the conversation, sort of conversational repair, uh, things things like this. But but it, and I think these 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 notions of questions are really really powerful because they're things that people can notice and talk about. Like he I called real me on the, I called, he grilled he grilled me. the details. Or... I called I called the infectious disease specialists, and they started asking. I was consulting them about this patient with fever, and then they asked me did the patient travel anywhere? Do they have any pets at home? What's their prior what, microbiology? Yeah, it, it immunization status. And I didn't really ask a lot of those questions. And you know, the astute person will say, well, clearly in this context, I should know the answers to these questions up front. And so this is this notion of the the feedback is being disguised and disguised because no one's saying, hey, let me give you some feedback on the things you should be asking here. The other thing that I think is really powerful is this notion of disguised feedback very much aligns with a an emerging phenomenon or construct in the medical education literature, which is performance-relevant information. Uh, Vandelov and Pimt who was one of my supervisors and others, wrote about this notion Is feedback is really something that learners perceive as relevant for their own performance. So it's not as much what the educators think they need, although that's a component, but it's what learners perceive in their environment as being relevant for their performance. This is in part what the disguised feedback is is about. And I think if we do simulations to sensitize people to the information that they're getting, we are perhaps setting them up to learn from their future encounters. And that was one of the things that we talked about in the in in the one paper about the disguised feedback is that typically we think of simulation as being learning, uh, simulation as learning to perform in simulation, you're performing a skill that you will then do in your clinical environment, whether it's an advanced life support maneuver, or it's an intubation or something. And this notion of disguised feedback and sensitizing people to that phenomenon made me think of simulation as learning how to learn, which is a completely different paradigm when we think of simulation. So if we sensitize people to phenomenon that they will experience in the future, they can perhaps learn more from that. Now, this is something that still needs for further study, but for example, if you teach people to participate in clinical event debriefings, and those clinical event debriefings in the future are more productive and glean more individual team and and, and organizational learning, then people are learning how to learn through simulation rather than only learning to perform. So I think for me, this is an example of how we need to continue pushing the boundaries of what simulation can do for us. It's not only about doing it in sim so that you can do it in the future. That's important. But there are other uses of simulation. And we need to explore those. And I think the conversations are are an important part of both the simulations and the future learning. And I think that's something to keep in mind.
4: I think, Walter, you're giving us another way to continue to integrate simulation into the curriculum, that it's not just the practice, but it's the learning to learn. Indeed. I just want to be explicit on the feedback, because for me, listening to you talk about your work, it's just lighting up all sides of my brain. The education, intellectual, deep nuance, as Dan said, but also the practical, what it's like to teach and work in an emergency department with colleagues and trainees. And it just makes so much sense. And for those of you who don't already follow Walter on Twitter, his handle is LearnThroughTalk. So uh, it applies to all aspects, including the kind of research that you do. So I think we briefly talked once about how qualitative research is a the highest level perhaps of learning through talk is you're creating new knowledge out of the conversations. And one of the other things that I appreciate and Janice didn't mention is that your PhD is primarily qualitative. And so congratulations on that for being a role model and leading the field for
3: us. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that's great. I love this. um, You In chapter two, you talk about the talk of authentic practice. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I have taken into my vocabulary from working with you and teaching with you, Walter, is authentic voice. And I was thinking, oh, authentic practice. Interesting. Did you study the effects or the impact of bringing your authentic voice into your authentic practice? No,
3: no, no. Uh, I, didn't. I didn't. This is a great question, and I think you really—it really speaks to this notion of uh, when you're doing this PhD work is that there are specific questions that you have for your papers and then you you write about things and then but then you're also bringing in other literature so I didn't study the bringing authentic voice into clinical practice that would be a very I think more complex study I need to I need to think about uh, a whole other (laughs) PhD but I think the notion the notion is that simulation has a place and yet one of the most important drivers of learning is engaging in actual patient care the reason for the activity is to care for a patient. And that's the thing we're talking about. I know you were citing uh, chapter two of my thesis, which is a chapter entitled, "It was." it's in a published book called Learning to Work Together Through Talk, and really with a focus on continuous professional development. And in that particular chapter, first of all, we talk about the role of talk in learning, which is so fundamental when you think about learning to present patients, which is a fundamental skill for both doctors. Presenting on rounds or nurse giving nurse to nurse sign out. There's specific ways you do it, and if you don't do it in the way that the culture tells you, you do it, that you, there are clear sanctions. People interrupt you, they stop you. It, people get all, they get a bee in their bonnet to use an expression that I'm sure Mary Fay would, would would, would you, be about. And um, there's actually a lot of work about how we our medical knowledge is, is organized in story form and it, it structures how we think. So the way we tell stories, like, hey, Damien, I have a six-year-old boy with a history of X, Y, and Z who's now presenting with these three things. He doesn't have this. He does have that, etc. cetera. This is the family history. This is the social history. Listen, on exam, here are some vital signs. This is what he looks like. These are the pertinent findings. This is what I think is going on. This is what I think we need to check this is what i would do next like that's the expectation and when people deviate from that it's really it it doesn't go well and i think the this book chapter that i wrote looked at continuous professional development which in many ways removes all learning from authentic patient care because it's online tests you go to a conference and you learn knowledge that is a contextual in many ways and in the chapter we talk about actually what we should be doing is taking Programs, projects within healthcare organizations that are around, let's say, quality improvement where people come together to deal with a thorny issue. Why is that not, not count as con- continuous professional development? So it's linking the learning to some authentic problem that's related to caring for patients. That's, mm-hmm. that's really what that was about.
4: So, Walter, maybe you could talk for a couple of minutes about assessment. I heard you say, like, if you deviate from the script or from the cultural accepted norm, you get sanctions. To me, there's assessment in that. You mentioned also implicit feedback. There's some assessment, self-assessment. And then the other piece I heard you say was, well, simulation is to help people care for patients. And I'm thinking, oh, well, how does a set simulation for assessment fit into your model or mm, the, mm-hmm. your thinking around mm-hmm. the purpose of healthcare simulation, and just interested to kind of tie yeah. those yeah. things in together. So,
3: I actually I, I appreciate the question on assessment, and I think the assessment is a perhaps one lens we could use to look at this. Both thinking about formative assessment, which is assessment of learning, as opposed to assessment of learning, which is more of a summative assessment, if you will. Um, I'm actually speaking more about cultural norms and societal pressures. And one of the theoretical lenses I used in, in in much of my work, in how I think about education, is a community as a practice approach, where people join a community, being a newcomer, not knowing what to do, what to say, not knowing how to speak like people of that uh, like people of that community, which is very relevant for healthcare, as many other people have written about. And how do they then move from being a newcomer to being an old timer or a core member of that community? And one of the things in my reading and and, and synthesizing of this information that I realized this is a lot of it has to do also with the hidden curriculum, nothing to do with formalized assessment. It's all about unintended consequences of of, of a curriculum. That's where I was going, because the
4: bee and the bonnet. I mean, you're if you're labeled as a bad resident, even though we have milestone assessment, so much of the assessment in GME is subjective and so much is coming from these interactions at the bedside or in rounds or in presentations. So to me, there's, there's like a, a, a hidden assessment curriculum too. And it seems like you're very, um, in your work, you're quite close to that territory. Yeah. And I would love to see, um, yeah. I mean, for... perhaps there might be interviews of, of educators and program directors to understand. To me, you're contributing in a great way about the learning experience. I would love you or a mentee of yours to contribute for us to understand the along the lines of radar cognition or just understanding how we evaluate our training. Well, I
3: appreciate you advocating how my research program should evolve. I, oh. I will take it under advisement <laughs> and maybe consider continue my own program. Cause I think for me the focus of assessment in particular, as it relates to application of, of assessment rubrics is not necessarily my prime my prime focus. And yet I think what your your comment speaks to is this notion that we're we're assessing, we're comparing people's performance with an internal standard. Whether or not we have particular performance metrics in mind, often it's more of a global assessment. Like you would know, I totally trust Janice to care for my family, even though I haven't used a particular checklist to assess her performance. So I think this notion of assessment is a very specific term. Hey, maybe it'll be my topic. Maybe. I just thought
4: I just I just thought
3: they're related.
4: You know, you and people are building their own ideas. You said they're reflecting on the implicit
3: feedback. Uh, that's because the assessments are being offered to them both by well, you know. Yeah, and I think for example, I had one one great quote from from one of my participants who was an intern at the time. Is is this notion of you know getting on the phone? Let's say you're calling a consult or you're having someone needing to come to you, and they push back, and they're they're actually mean on the phone, right? A lot of people talked about, you know, borderline disruptive behavior, unprofessionalism. unprofessionalism, And, uh, but if there are people who are constantly interrupting you, and over the course of the next, the period of time, whatever it might be, you're calling that particular person, now they don't interrupt you, you realize that, hey, I must be learning something, I'm not getting interrupted anymore. Like, wow, I get to the end of my presentation, and They didn't interrupt me. And so what this one person said, because people very often expect the phone call to be, I'm going to call and then get an answer and it'll be done. Or I call and say, I think this patient needs admission. And they're like, sure, happy to admit the patient. Or... This patient needs to go to the ICU. Sure, we'll get a bed ready. But that's not how it often happens because everyone has their own needs and and agenda and and resource allocation that they have in mind. And this one particular person said specifically, even though you're upset about it when you get off the telephone, actually, when you reflect on it, you learn more from the jerks Mm. than the people who are super nice from you, which is not that we should be jerks, not that we should be producing tensions, but that there is value in them.
1: But I feel like this is where the authentic voice comes in because... Many of these like many of these behaviors you're talking about, I'm sure these people talk that way generally, like from a general perspective. But
4: what Walter's saying rings true to me because if I work with somebody over a number of weeks and the first few interactions, it's like, well, what about this and this? And did you think about that? And well, are you checking the potassium and are you you know, and then on the fourth week I'm like, Okay, yeah, sounds good. Whatever you want to do, sounds good. I am delivering implicit feedback about the level of trust I am uh, decreasing their interference in their patient care, giving them more of an opportunity. And I think I am delivering my assessment as, I don't know, yeah, that, that's yeah, where I'm coming from, I, I why I'm you. interested in the, in the overlap. The other
3: thing that is that was so powerful, again, if I was specifically looking on this, I could do more interviews and, and do a whole study, but it's this notion of relationship building and rapport building in clinical practice. Like it's the same surgical resident, they're having a rough night and, and you're now constantly seeing them Come to the ED to consult your patients, you're joking around with them, you're having a good relationship. You can actually learn and have more fun. The other thing that was really interesting is that one of the things that's so important about learning, at least on the telephone, is learning the why behind what people are recommending Mm -hmm. or asking the why behind X, Y, and Z. And one of the things uh, that came through loud and clear in my data, and I wrote about in the paper that's forthcoming now, is When there's the the tensions become unproductive, when it's unpleasant, when someone is being such a jerk on the telephone, you just say, "Just tell me what I need to do," and you want to end the conversation. Versus when there is a rapport and when there's a collegial conversation, you might, the residents reported, explore them. So tell me why, or can you actually? Can I can I pose a hypothetical to you then? Like Mm -hmm. I'm wondering about this and that. The conversation takes a bit of more of a learning turn. And that the residents can manage the learning window that they have at that moment in time by posing more questions that are related to this actual patient they have in front of them right now. But if it tips to unproductive tension and disruptive behavior, then people just want to end the conversation.
1: And I, I think that really speaks to what you bring out in your um, in all of your concepts of how learning or talk, creates the culture Mm -hmm. and um and then learning from that and for that that's just really
3: yeah the links between talk and competence talk allows you to develop competence talk is there to assess competence Mm -hmm. talk allows you to embody competence it it, it's such a really important because once you move to that community of practice if you will and you become an old timer and you use the lingo effectively that that shows that you're now you know, a full member when you're able to talk in that way and uh, bring on new people, right? Because it's a constant stream of new ones coming up the stream. So,
1: so talking about bringing on new, new people into the conversation, Mary, is there anything that, any questions you have? Because I know we've been gabbing here. Yeah. So, um, so Walter, you brought up um, uh, an idea that I'm not familiar with. You talked a while back about feedback that's relevant for performance. And, you know, I, I think about that in the context of the, the learning relationship, the teacher-learner relationship. And I, I don't know if you found this or if you even looked at this much, but I think that there is a real phenomenon in education of teachers thinking that the conversation or the learning needs to go in one direction and learners thinking that it needs to go in the other direction. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that and how the two can connect to make sure that the feedback that's happening really is the feedback that's relevant for performance.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I don't necessarily think that there this notion of relationships between educators and learners and performance relevant information as a, way of viewing feedback are necessarily distinct uh, I think or they I think they are distinct in that there's a relationship with educators and learners and performance relevant information is a construct that's relevant for learners of all types of uh, across the spectrum certainly attending physicians experienced nurses they're learning things too that are relevant for how they need to do their job um, I think that's what it's about it's like what do I what am I what kind of cues am I taking Taking on board in my environment, both implicit and explicit, that helped me do my job better. And um, one of the things we know though about the relationship is that it enables the conversation. So learning is a highly social process. Just to give you an example, that I wrote about this at multiple points in my thesis too, is it's so a how do you bring people together in time and space so that they can develop the relationships and have the conversations. So, so to give you a very concrete example of this, there's a movement. In medical education, specifically with physician education, to doing longitudinal clerkships, where instead of rotating uh, every four weeks, you now spend a many many months, or even part of your whole medical education training, in the same environment with the same other residents, with the same attending physicians, so that you have the t- chance to develop relationships, or you're on a ward for a particular a longer period of time, like in Europe, for example, people do rotations that are six months long. You know the nurses, you know the ancillary staff, you know the other physicians, and you can develop relationships that enable the conversations in which you're learning what you need to learn to, to get the job done. And in many ways, uh, even the way we design hospitals, there's lovely work on this. This is not my primary research, but the way you design hospitals, do the doctors and nurses sit in the same location next to each other, or the doctors sit in one room and the nurses sit in another another part? And um, in our ER, for example, which emergency department, which is relatively new, the physicians used to sit in this sort of fishbowl area. And whenever a nurse would want to come and speak with them, the nurse would have to enter the room. And for whatever for every reason, over the past year, almost none of the residents sit in there consistently. They sit outside where they're easily nurses walk by. It's very easy for the nurses to speak with them. And I think this really speaks to how we engineer spaces to allow the conversations to happen. In Chicago, there's a new rehabilitation hospital. And in speaking with the one of the educational leaders at, the, at that rehab hospital, or Ability Lab, as it's called now, it was very important to him to have a space where residents could go and hang out when they had some downtime, but that it was comfortable so that they would be spend time there together with each other. And as we all know, we learn through other people's stories. And so this physical space that was constructed in this hospital is a place where residents like to go. They have an hour break. They have some downtime. They're going and hanging out with other residents. And then just by the nature of being in the same room, they're going to have conversations about, oh, I had this patient. Or, Tell me, how would you do this? So there's something about bringing people together in time and space and nurturing those relationships that you speak to, Mary, that are fundamentally important so that people then can glean the information that they think is relevant for their performance.
1: Wow, this must be a huge thing because Harvard Medical School is changing their building too to create this hangout space for the medical student. I
3: think it's all about the informal time. There's some work that I'm doing with, with Jan Schmutz, uh, Pedro Marquez Quintero, and a guy called Marco Artino, who are all three psychologists, and we're looking at teamwork in extreme environments. And actually, in February of, of last year, I spent time in Antarctica in King George Island doing uh, team research, and we interviewed research teams who are there to collect samples and do do their research. And also we spoke with logistics staff that are there to support, who are there to support the, 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 researchers to figure out what drives effective teamwork in this environment. And one of the big things that's emerging in our analysis is this notion of informal time you spend with people eating together, playing table tennis together, playing foosball together, hanging out, watching movies together. Those enhanced relationships actually make it easier then. To deal with situations where suddenly there's an acute issue, and you need to be rapidly adaptive and brainstorming and innovative in order to find a solution to move forward, like when I don't know one of your piece of equipment breaks, and now if you don't get a solution, your samples are all lost because you can't monitor a consistent level of oh, I don't know oxygen or something. Um, but that these informal times and the relationships are fundamental to how this all functions.
1: Dan, Dan, you look like you're non-verbally back-channeling us.
2: Yes. So, Walter, <laughs> you used a word that I'd never heard or imagined before, and I, it was something like uh, paraverbal or something like that. And, and so it made me think that, that I should welcome you to the PhD club. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So thank you very much, Walter. Really interesting conversation about conversation. And uh and I think your work and and hopefully the inspiration that you've provided to others to continue working in the in, in the field in an academic way will really advance things much faster than it would otherwise. And I would have thank to you thank,
3: thank you, Dan, for your inspiration over almost 15 years worth of inspiration, also to, to Robert and uh, Simon and Jenny Rudolph, and also many thanks to my, my PhD team, Pim and Tim Dornan, Jan-Goswarthans, and of course to Adam Chang, who's a very, very frequent collaborator. All right,
1: thanks, Walzer.
0: Right. DJ Simulationistas, sup? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation, Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedicine.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.